You're listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Brian Elrod. Brian is a co-founder and CEO of Text Request, a Chattanooga company and the industry leader in business texting. His story, however, doesn't begin there. Brian, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your serial entrepreneurism, let me ask, what is in your morning cup? Uh, my morning cup is empty, Mike. It's empty. <laughs> now, I did offer coffee. Do you usually have something in the morning? Uh, yes, I've had two cups so far. So I uh, moved from coffee to energy drinks in the afternoon now. What's your uh, What's your flavor? Black. And, you know, I was cream guy forever until we couldn't keep it in the office. And all of my young employees were straight black. So I toughened up and switched to black only. That's interesting because usually people just starting to drink coffee or doctoring it up. And it's usually when you get to be an old craggly guy like me that, that you're drinking black coffee. But it was the young kids who took you in that direction. Yes. We had several Covenant College graduates that were at text requests in the very beginning, and they all drank black coffee. And we couldn't keep cream in the office, so <laughs> I had to make the switch. And we were hammering coffee in the early days. Oh, I, I bet you were. Well, let's talk about that. You grew up in Flintstone, Georgia. You're a local guy, went to UTC, but you started a couple companies and uh, being text requests where you are now, but also the, the franchising of educational outfitters. So if you would, before we get talking about those, you went to UTC. What were you majoring in? Uh, business management. Uh, I wasn't honestly very interested in school. Uh, until I got to college and um, was able to, you know, focus in on things that interested me, such as marketing, economics, and obviously, you know, other business classes. And I did fairly well at UTC, but I am a, you know, a case of not really interested in high school, doing just enough to get by. And college was interesting. I wanted to get through it, though. Uh, the first couple of years I did play baseball at another school, Ended up transferring to UTC my sophomore year, and I would take 21 hours a semester. That's a lot. Back then, and I don't think it's this way now, but at UTC, as long as you paid for 12 hours, you could take as many as you would like. So, so you with the value path? I was the value. <laughs> I was trying to get through it. I, if you know what, if 18, 21, I'll take 21. Yeah. Uh, so, and I worked. I had a part-time job. I would work three nights a week. What were you doing? I was working at Averett Express on their loading dock and went in and moved freight from usually like three to 10 and uh, taking 21 hours, 18 hours a semester trying to get through. In doing that, were you able to get out early? Uh, no, but I was able to graduate on time. So it, it took me four years. See, uh, I call that early. Okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, I wasn't very interested in fraternities, you know, any of that sort of thing. Uh, I went to school, classes, studied, went to work, and that was my college experience. Well, you said something interesting about the difference between high school and college. You weren't real interested in high school, but in college, you got to study the things that interested you. And, and that seems to be a big factor for a lot, because high school, it's kind of a regimented, you're going to study this. That's correct. And that's probably why it actually took me four years, because 
out of high school, I, I didn't test very well. So I took a lot of, what are, I'm not sure what they call the classes. Uh, academics were not something I was totally into until, you know, the, until college. Mm-hmm. We were talking a little bit earlier. You're known for what text request is doing now, but you didn't start there. And you said something interesting to me. You've always been interested in entrepreneurship, but you couldn't afford to be an entrepreneur. Explain that. Well, you know, I grew up, my dad was a truck driver. My mom was a homemaker. I had little uh, resources to start a business. And I hear kids all the time that are wanting to start businesses right out of college. And I'm like, you know, that's great if you have the resources to do that, but you don't have the experience to do it. Yeah. So it just happened that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't have the resources at all. So uh, I wanted to do anything but work in the transportation and logistics industry. Anything else I was up for. So I went around Chattanooga after I you know, graduated senior year. I probably interviewed at 12, 15 places in 1991. Not a single job offer. And 91 was a recession year, was it not? It was, yes. It was tough sledding. But thank goodness for my dad. He uh, finds a job opportunity for me at his company called Roadway Express, but it had to be outside of his district. They had rules where, you know, family members could not work in the same district. So I took my first job. It was probably 92, actually, because I'd looked for like a year after I graduated in Meridian, Mississippi, of all places. It's a happening town. It was, it was very unexpected. And when I get there, I think I had mentioned to you that I was interested in being a naval pilot as well and had signed a Marine contract my junior year, which ended up, you know, I was able to get out of that because, well, I wasn't able to. They basically said, hey, we're no longer doing guaranteed air packages and uh, you can, you know, become an infantry or go to OCS and earn your spot. So they let me out of the contract. But the weirdest thing in Meridian, Mississippi, at that time period in the early 90s, is where they did the jet training for all naval pilots. And I was in an apartment complex full of young Navy pilots and Marines, and it was a lot of fun. So you got that experience to a great degree. They took me in and took us to the officers club and got to have a lot of fun with them in the early 90s. So yes. So getting back to your question, um, ended up working in logistics and transportation. But that wasn't your love, right? Oh, no, no. At the time, it was the only opportunity I had. So that was roughly 1992. I'd go through the training program. They moved me to Baton Rouge, uh, which I'd never been to Louisiana before then. My wife and I were married that year, and so it was an adventure, right? That's how we looked at it. And I went down, I started working my first third shift job, which if you're not used to working third shift in a night for a trucking company, I would go into the worst part of town, which it always seems like that's where Roadway Expresses were located. We had constant theft, and it was dangerous, actually, and I would be by myself. What were the hours on third shift, 11P to 8A or something? Yeah, it would depend on the amount of freight that was coming in. Like Monday nights and Sunday nights were always much busier than, say, Friday, but usually start at 11 or midnight and get home at 11 or midnight the next day. Wow, that's paying your dues. <laughs> I can remember falling asleep, you know, at red lights on my way home. And I hated the job so much, I can remember crying. And we had a new baby on the way and a new house. 
and I am sobbing because I am so <laughs> miserable working this job. But stuck to it for like two years, and then I got a promotion into sales, which was much more glamorous at the time. You know, expense account, car, and they moved me to New Orleans. And so that was the, the real first experience of not working and paying my dues and third shift. That's a great point. And I don't think as many people today understand that paying your dues and the persistence. We've all been in parts of our career where we've just gone, what am I doing? Why am I here in Baton Rouge at 2 a.m.? In the morning, right. And I can remember guns were against our company policy, but I remember carrying a gun to work just to feel like I, you know, was safe enough to go to work. But you know, then the career started happening and got a few promotions along the way and went from Baton Rouge to Montgomery to manage larger accounts. When we went to Montgomery, I took that job and promotion because it got me a lot closer to Chattanooga. And uh, we got there and really liked it, which we were not expecting that. But I think it's one of those cities that its reputation really doesn't describe the people, and what a welcoming place it is. Well put. That was my personal experience. Yeah, I met a lot of good people down there, too. So you're growing your career in the transportation logistics industry. Why don't you stick with it? Uh, I didn't enjoy it, first of all, and it was never my passion. Entrepreneurship and working for myself and believing that, you know, I always believed that I could do things better than anyone else. I just needed time to prove that along the way. My wife and I started our first business in Montgomery, and we bought a little franchise, and she ran it. My wife is also always, you know, this story is not complete without my wife, Jamie, because she's been, you know, with me every step of the way, and she's been a business partner every step of the way. Uh, So we kind of have a unique relationship that we've worked together a lot. So when I say co-founder of Text Request, your wife is the co-founder also. Right. Along with the technical co-founder and Rob Reagan is our third. So there's three of us. Okay. And what did you and your wife start with in Montgomery? We started a little franchise that was called Kinderdance. And she this is our first business that we, you know, ever owned. It was a franchise, which later became important because I founded a franchise. So, I, you know, I learned about franchising and how you could grow through owner operators and spread your brand and uh, diversify the capital needed to really grow a brand. Probably if we didn't do that in Montgomery, I wouldn't have known as much about franchising. It was a very inexpensive franchise. It definitely did not produce a lot of money, but it educated us on what a franchise looks like, how you go about training, what an FDD is, which is, you know, all the rules around franchising. Uh, so at the time when we did that, we had it like a year and then we ended up selling it because I took a job in South Florida. And the first time I ever went through a recruiter, a headhunter and took a job for the money, moved to South Florida and again was miserable. That's a bit of a heady experience too, being approached by a recruiter and offering you a lot of money to go do something that you weren't thinking about. Right. That's when I moved from the asset carriers of transportation to the third party logistics side, which is also, you know, very popular in Chattanooga, but this was in the late nineties and, you know, it was a much uh, less well-known thing. Uh, But when I went to South Florida, I went to work for a company called Hart Hanks. 
logistics and they're big into data. But the big thing that we did there was all the newspaper inserts for Sunday papers, all of those things, their company printed them and our company moved them. So they were super time sensitive because they always had to be at a paper, like a Times Free Press at a certain time, at a certain hour. And we did mail print and advertising as well. And it was the same thing where they had to be, you know, straight into the, the post office at a certain time. The most stressful job I've ever had. Because these are the inserts that are going into the Sunday paper or the Wednesday Best Food Day paper. And if you miss that. Millions of dollars of sales. You know, so the product was kind of worthless. It was just printed paper. But it was always, you know, we had times where we actually airlifted off of a, a train to get containers off of it. Because maybe I remember one time there was a strike and we needed this stuff and Union Pacific or someone went on strike. We had to get them off, and and they were going to Los Angeles, big sale sort of thing. But, yes, extremely – I was working six days a week, 12 hours a day. That was what it was required, calls all day Sunday. Uh, So I guess it was – we were down there a little over a year, maybe a year and a half, and my wife was like, I love you. (laughs) I don't like South Florida. We had two young boys at the time. Uh, I'm not raising them here. I'm going home. You figure out how to get there. And so that's a challenge. That's how we got back to Chattanooga. So in that you're in South Florida, do you decide, okay, I'm going to go back to Chattanooga and figure it out. Or when I figure it out, I'm going to go back to Chattanooga. Right. So, um, a couple of things were happening during that timeline. Uh, she went back I had went to my manager. We were starting a new division to compete with UPS, actually, using the postal service to deliver home goods, basically. UPS didn't like it, charged a lot more for the residential deliveries. We were working with the post office, and I went into my boss at the time, and I was like, look, I can do this anywhere. I need to be back in Chattanooga. That's where my family's moving and it worked out. So at the time, he let me do remote work. Wow, you were way ahead of the curve. We were ahead of the curve. But it was one of those things. He needed me, and I needed him. We had a big project going on, and I had moved mostly out of the operational side at that point with this startup at, in a side of a corporate. I, I was lucky in the fact that at several places along my corporate career, I was able to do startups. Even in New Orleans, they had just started an NVOCC, which is, you know, ocean freight. Uh, It was new, and no one, none of the people that had been at Roadway in New Orleans wanted to deal with it because it was something new. Mm -hmm. And I was the new person. I'm like, sure, I'll do it. And so it was going around calling them freight brokers and custom houses, and it was building LCL containers and, you know, mostly to South America from New Orleans. So that was really interesting. It was a startup. I take this job in South Florida. I'm working a year or so in their operations, and they have a startup. It was a home delivery service to compete against UPS. So I was able to jump into that. But everything ties together. There is no straight line. We talked a little bit about this. I'm going to try to bring some of these things together and show you how this picture was painted, right? We owned the franchise business in South Florida. I'm sorry, in Alabama. So we learned a little bit about franchising. We moved to South Florida. Well, my five-year-old went to a private school. 
and knew nothing about school uniforms. And uh, they hand her a piece of paper and said, this is where you get your uniforms. And so she went to the local uniform store in South Florida. Well, when she moved back, she put our son into a private school here. I think it was Brainerd Baptist. And there was no local school uniform store. So that's the first opportunity we saw. And she was like, well, where is the uniform store? It was in Memphis yeah, or Atlanta. And internet shopping at that time was not that. No, no, that was late 90s. You had a catalog and a phone. That's right. (laughs) So because of our experience of, you know, South Florida and going to a local uniform store, we figured that all out, went around and saw schools, saw there was an opportunity, and we started our first business here in Chattanooga, and it was called Educational Outfitters. Started it in our garage to buy inventory. We sold a car just to get the cash. Bootstrapped it. You didn't go to anyone and say, we want you to invest in our company. Yeah, I'd say that's the only way I've known how to do business is bootstrap. I mean, when we started text request, I went around begging everyone for money. And I, I don't think I'm very good at that because <laughs> no one would give us money. <laughs> so that again became, you know, an advantage of that we've never had investors. I just had to figure out how to make things profitable and make them profitable fast because we didn't have investors, which oddly enough, now San Francisco determines that's how you should do business. You should be profitable. That's the only way I knew how to operate a business. Um, So we start that. We open a store in Chattanooga. It does really well. We moved to Knoxville. We open another store. It does really well. I've left the corporate world by this time. What year was this you left the corporate world? Uh, probably 2000. And I want to go back to something you said about being in the corporate world and being in startups. You originally said, I, I didn't have the resources to be an entrepreneur, but that really gave you the resources there to allow you to train to be an entrepreneur, didn't it? Sure. It definitely, I was able to, to have a lot of hard lessons on someone else's dime. For That's sure. a good thing. Yes. It took a lot of bumps in the head along the way. Yeah. And I bring that up because I think a lot of people, and particularly kids who are in entrepreneurial programs today in college, don't always see the value of spending those five or 10 years in a corporate culture to be able to learn those lessons. Oh, it was so valuable to me because at Roadway at the time was a Fortune 500 company. They sent me to six weeks of sales training and everything from etiquette classes to how to have a corporate dinner with someone. And all of that was extremely valuable. Not to mention, you know, just having a startup at a corporate world. You know, we talked a little bit about people trying to start it out of college. And I'm always like, yeah, you know, really, you you should go learn all of this on someone else's dime and, and learn how to, to fail where it doesn't cost you anything. And values have changed a lot. Like when we have a business, it is our life. It consumes us. At one time, my wife and I were on a panel. It was part of Startup Week. And It was us and three other couples, young couples, and they all talked about they turned it off at five o'clock. And my wife and I are looking at us going, what is wrong with these people? You don't start a business. You don't sink everything into it you own. And no, no, at five o'clock, we turn it off and that's what we do. That's how we protect our relationship. I don't know how those folks' businesses are today, but my wife is asking me questions at 10 o'clock. I'm begging her last night to put her computer up. It's just, you know, that's it consumes us. 
I'm calling BS on those people. Yeah, it just <laughs> because it, it to your point, it, it's not that it consumes you so much, but it's your life and your lifestyle. Everything you have is in that business That's and your exactly future. Right. And everything we do is to protect the business. I'm a Yellowstone fan. I don't know if anyone else watches Yellowstone, <laughs> but he's he's always talking about protecting the ranch. Yeah. And a lot of times we make decisions where we're protecting the business. And a lot of those talks are at 10, 11 o'clock at night. They're not nine to five. But there's one more loose end I want to tie in. After we opened that store in Knoxville, we realized that we wanted to grow the brand, but there was only two of us. And if we wanted to grow, we needed to do it through owner operators, which is the franchising model. Well, if you look back, in the late 90s in Montgomery owned that little franchise, right? So because we stumbled in a school uniform store, we had the idea of school uniforms in Chattanooga. Because we opened that little franchise in Montgomery, we had the ideal of franchising. So in 2002, we started franchising educational outfitters. And by 2008, when I sold it, there were 50 stores. Wow. So I, I haven't been involved as far as, you know, we sold the the local store in 2005 and the franchising business in 2008. So there were two companies there. But all of those things are connected to the history. So to your point, as you're growing up in Flintstone, you're in high school, and even when you're in college, you're not thinking, boy, if I could just be the educational outfitter king. It's something that came your way because of something else came your way and took you down a path that led you to that. Absolutely. I, I remember I grew up in a tiny house, very modest. It was in Flintstone and it looked up at the mountain and I could see all of those huge mansions on top of the mountain. And I just wanted to figure out how to get there one day, you know, like how do I go from this to that? Mm -hmm. And that's the great thing about America, because if you have the will and the ability, you can certainly do that. But you didn't have a plan laid out that said, I do this, this, this. Absolutely and this. not. You just yeah. went to work and each opportunity was a door. That's right. So you sold the franchise educational outfitters. Yes. Does that bring you into text request and how did that come about? So there was a failure in between. Okay. There was another failed franchise attempt in between educational outfitters and text requests, and it was called Jock Sale consignment events and essentially what I saw all of this gear I had all of these boys and just stuff was just sitting around and I'd noticed this franchise concept called just between friends where these moms were bringing everything in and the franchise company sold it gave me the concept hey let's do that for gear you know all of this gear in your garage and it, it failed for a couple of reasons, but mainly because technology and there were a lot of apps coming online where people were selling things online. And number two, guys don't like to get rid of their stuff. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Particularly athletic stuff where you yes. think you might use it again. Fishing poles, you name it, anything outdoors. And we depended on that inventory to sell. Now, their wives many times would bring it in and dump it off, but we needed really the guys to really buy into it. But in that failure was my first time building software. So I actually hired a company and I went through all the, you know, I, they basically were a software consultant. They were building exactly what I wanted because there was a lot of moving pieces in this, you know, like 
uh, entering inventory and printing the barcodes and tracking what was sold and, you know, paying their fee to them. Uh, all of that we developed from scratch, and it gave me just enough experience in software. And guess what? Then we saw the opportunity for text requests. We're sitting in a restaurant. We realize everyone is on their phones. They're mobile. You know, we had a two-year-old screaming at the time. My wife said, why can't we just text someone to bring us our check? And that's where it happened. We're like, why can't you? Why aren't businesses listening to consumers through mm -hmm. the way they like to communicate, which is text? That was in 2012, roughly, when the concept hit us. And then we started thinking about all of the use cases. Well, you could do it here. You could do it there. But because of the failure and that we had just enough experience in building software, I knew how to ask the questions, find the right person, find the right partner. And we started, you know, interviewing software people around town. And someone introduced us to Rob Reagan, which was, you know, looking back on it, he was the perfect fit. He was looking to do something besides build software for other people because that's what he was doing. He was a consultant. Well, take me through the concept of text requests, the practical uses that you're seeing now and where you're taking the service. Right. So it's like anything, you know, we've made a lot of pivots along the way. You know, it started as a customer service tool so businesses could listen to consumers through text. And now it's turned into a payment tool to now we have a review management tool to SMS chat where you gather, you know, so uh, it's evolved into a complete messaging platform that businesses are using to manage their messaging as a team. And it's organized. It's doing everything from payments to review management to communication to marketing, basically giving them the ability to touch consumers through the phone and also never forget the basis the consumer to touch them through the phone, through a text as well. And I agree with what you said earlier about the way people like to communicate. I think texting has become that it's not bothering me. It got me the information I need, and I don't necessarily have to engage with it right away. Right. In terms of pivoting, I think you bring up an important point. So many people get focused on this is what I'm going to do that they fail to pivot. How important has that been, not just with text requests, but throughout your career? Well, if you're not fast to pivot through a startup or you're very stubborn about pivoting, you're going to fail. And you'll learn, that'll be your failure <laughs> that you learn from, that I should have paid attention to this and that. Uh, because what happens if you get just a little bit of traction, I always compare it to, you know, a snowball. Like you, you pack a snowball, you get it moving through the snow and it gets bigger and bigger. And that's all you're trying to do with a startup is you're just trying to move it and then it starts moving on its own. So that's a great analogy. But along the way, if you don't make those pivots, it's just going to die because the market and your customers will tell you what they need. and You have to pay attention. So that's one of the great things about text requests. Early on, we just listened to our consumers. They would tell us exactly what they needed. And that's what we would build. Mm -hmm. You know, the first year or two of text requests, I, I've spent time trying to raise money, and I was really bad at it. Almost no one believed in us, the concept. And I would always go, well, this is exactly what you want. You want an experienced entrepreneur with a solid business model that has customers, that has proven there's a market fit. 
and it was a no, no, no. But I also learned in the process too, there's a lot of fake investors that are probably pretty successful people. They've retired, but they're really not investors. Well, explain that a little bit. Uh, They'll take a lot of your time and you'll spend a lot of time on legal fees to get stuff and then they'll back out at the end. (laughs) That's how I would explain it. I mean, I understand that there's a lot of ways of going about starting a business. There's a lot of ways to skin the cat and be successful at it. Uh, But I was sitting down uh, with a man one time, and I heard this more than once. And some of the best advice I ever received was, if you can do it without investors, do it. It's great advice, isn't it? He said, if there's any way you can do it without raising money, do it. And this is coming from the investor. I think what a lot of entrepreneurs who are just getting started and are out talking to investors don't necessarily understand that they're giving up equity. They're giving up part of their business. And they're also having to answer to other people. The whole reason you decide to become an entrepreneur is to work for yourself. Right. Not to always answer for someone. So while his advice we ended up obviously taking, I mean, it was kind of forced on us because we could never raise the needed money that we needed for the first investment. I look back on it, and that was the biggest break. But what happened was we started getting consumers using our business, and revenue started growing. And we're like, hey, I think, you know, I think I remember at the time we had built up like $350,000 of credit card debt. I had all these credit cards, and, you know, that that monthly. (laughs) That'll make you work hard. Uh, You know, that was my fourth business, I guess, at the time. So there was a lot of pressure, a lot of working after five with my wife, you know, but. You didn't turn it off at five? No, not when you have those type (laughs) of bills. You don't turn it off. Well, talking about raising the money, what I find interesting is you had a very successful business that you sold. You had really the gold standard of success, yet investors weren't willing to hook up to that. They were not. No, I thought the gray hair might have meant something, but it didn't. But probably the best thing that happened was the fact that they didn't sign up and it's 100% yours. Right. Well, it's 100% us three. So, yes, very lucky from that point because we, you know, last year we went past a milestone that Kenneth, our VP of marketing, who really tracks all of these statistics, says that only half of a percent of SaaS companies, uh, software as a service company, achieve $10 million in ARR. Only half a percent of SASs will do that without investors. We did something that 99.5% of other SAS companies do. And how many years did that take you to do? It was an overnight success, Mike. Uh, It took us eight years to do that. Yeah. It's a lot of hard work that goes into that overnight success, isn't it? It is. We're in year nine now and, uh, you know, have a lot of big plans about messaging and helping all types of businesses. And it's really nice now because we work with really large companies, really small companies. What was the turning point at Text Request in terms of going, okay, we have something? Was it a particular client you picked up or just the momentum of the business? All right, I'm going to tie back into my history again. So we came out of the franchise business, right? Because I had owned a franchise company. I was familiar with franchising. And an account called Merry Maids really was the turning point for us because we were struggling trying to find exactly the market fit. And because of franchising, I'm like, why don't we focus on franchising? You know, because franchise owners stick together. 
they trust each other. And so if we're able to get some franchise companies to adopt us, and I'm not talking about at the top, the franchisor level, I'm talking about the local owned franchise owners. So like if the Atlanta franchise signs up your services, it's happy. The Memphis franchise is going to hear about it. Bingo. So that's exactly what happened. We, you know, had a, a few early adopters that we were able to get into at Mary Maids and they really liked the service. Maybe we added some features. They would say, we like this. We'd add a feature in a week or overnight sometimes. Yeah. And they felt involved in us developing some software for them. And before I knew it, we had 300 Mary Maids. Wow. So that was really the point where we knew we had something. And that was the point we stopped looking at investors and just turned, turned attention to other franchise systems. And is franchise still an integral part of your Huge, business? yes, absolutely. A couple more questions for you. Talk a little bit about what's next for Text Request. Uh, so we have a roadmap that has all of these cool things that customers are still telling us about that we're trying to develop. But uh, that's really what we stay focused on. The same thing that we did the first year, listening to our customers and developing what they need. Uh, we hope to keep hitting these amazing milestones of doing things that, as far as I'm aware of, not many tech companies in Chattanooga have ever done. Um, so, When you talk about developing things your customers are saying, they need, are you doing that internally now or doing it externally? No, we, from day one, really have done everything. In everything in house. Right. So we have a group of, at last count, like eight engineers, roughly. Now, they're not all in Chattanooga. That's a tough skill set, so a lot of them are remote, but... We pretty much develop, and that's part of Rob's philosophy. He has his own, you know, tech stack and how he goes about things, and it's really keeping it in-house. You've got a great success story, Brian. I do have one last question for you, and just think about it a minute. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would probably tell myself for happiness to me is to have a purpose and to be doing something. Uh, so family would be number one, that I put a lot of value into my family and making sure that everything is covered there and to always find something that gives me purpose to do. Because if I have a purpose, I feel like waking up, I'm, I'm out of bed, I'm moving, um, and I would tell young entrepreneurs, you need a level of focus. If you're doing a lot of things and, you know, you've got to be able to focus in. Entrepreneurs that don't focus or they try to build, build, build without doing, you know, without just don't overanalyze it. Just get out there and do it. I mean, still 10 years into text requests, we throw products out sometimes that are, aren't complete. And we know they're not complete. And we just start building on top of it because we got to get started. You know, we have to do something. So that's what I would tell myself. And I would tell myself to keep walking. It always gets better. I mean, when I go back early in my career, I remember I was in the bed sobbing about how much I hated my job. Yeah, That happened more than once. There was another time in South Florida where it was in the same boat. But, you know, just don't give up. That perseverance and persistence, just keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. One of my favorite quotes is an old Winston Churchill quote, when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. It's not supposed to be easy. No. So 
just keep all that in perspective and keep moving. Well, I really appreciate you coming in and talking to us about your career, the successes, the ups and the downs, and where you are today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.